Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. Today I'm talking to my buddy Mickey Drexler. Mickey is one of the coolest people I know. I am so fortunate to have met Mickey in my life. He's been a role model for me. Now he's a dear friend. If you're not sure where you heard the name Mickey Drexler, do you remember the gap in the 90s? That was Mickey. And I'm sure in your closet, you've got some clothes by a brand called J. Crew. You could thank Mickey for that. And if that's not enough, and I can go on forever, there's a guy named Steve Jobs that called on Mickey to help him create one of the first Apple stores. That's my buddy, Mickey. First time I ever met Mickey, I was at a fundraiser for someone named Barack Obama. And he was sitting at a table, I don't want to name drop, but at Bon Jovi's house in New Jersey. And I looked around all these interesting, cool business people, and I spotted Mickey Drexler. And I ran right over to him, introduced myself, and he said, let's have lunch on Tuesday. And we did. Mickey throughout my career has been there to show me the importance of being myself. I was a girl in a corporate environment, not really corporate. And I was always trying to do the right thing. I never seemed to be doing the right thing. And Mickey really gave me permission to be myself. Mickey Drexler, I love you. Here's my conversation with Mickey. I'm here with my dear friend and the godfather of Soul Cycle, Mickey Drexler, who um, doesn't even understand his own power, his own, like, I don't even know what the word is. People are obsessed with you. I am one of those people. I first met Mickey, I don't know how many years ago, we were in, without name dropping, but I will anyways, backyard at Bon Jovi's house, and uh, there was Barack Obama was running the first time? Right, it was, a uh, yeah, first time Obama fundraiser. Right, and there were so many people. And I turned over to my husband, I said, oh my God, Stephen, it's Mickey Drexler. And Stephen's like, who? And I got up and I went right over and we like connected and like we yapped, we talked about, you know, business and in two seconds. And then you called, we, I said, let's have lunch. You said, absolutely. You called me the next morning. Do you want to have lunch Tuesday at one o'clock at wherever? And I said, yes. And that taught me to not go through my assistance for every little thing. Yeah, I, I just call it a matter of... Uh respect. Well, you just, you, you are a man that likes to get things done. Get it done. And I find it a little pretentious when the assistants call. But sometimes people are very busy and they just, they are, but if they figured it out, they're not too busy. Right. Right. So I, I took that from you. And the other thing I learned from you, I got in trouble. The microphone at work, oh, right. the sound, yeah, which right. I used and I called a few things and then I, HR came down, so they took it away from me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very famous that at J. Crew you yeah, had yeah. this. Uh, well, I don't know why more people in, in organizations don't use a microphone because it's t- totally transparent. It's what you think, what you say, and I think it's a great communications tool, you know. Better than most things, because it's a it's, real live tool. Right. And, you know, we were discussing, I remember when I was at your office and you asked people where we should go have lunch or if they ever heard of my makeup, you know, it was right. actually very yeah. funny. Yeah. It was really, really funny. Well, it was, it, it was great. It really helped me a lot. 
So let's go back, though. Let's go back okay. to when you were a kid. You are from the Bronx. Grew up in the Bronx. And what kind of upbringing did you have? Um, well, I don't know what you'd call it, but I guess in the 50s when I grew up, it was very kind of, uh, to me, it was a normal middle-class upbringing. If I look back, it was probably lower middle, if you will. Uh, I did not have a bedroom. Uh, Where did you sleep? I, I slept in the, uh, first I slept in the foyer entrance to the, to the one-bedroom apartment I lived in. And then I graduated to the living room on a uh, convertible sofa uh, or couch. Uh, and, uh, and that's where I slept. Until you were how old? Um, we moved when I was uh, a sophomore in high school. And brothers and sisters? No, I was an only uh, child. My mother um, had uh, breast cancer just about a year or two after I was born Hmm. and didn't have any more children, died when I was uh, 16. Wow. So, uh, but we moved to Yonkers uh, when I was in high school. And um, what kind of work did your dad do? He was a piece goods and button buyer in the garment business, worked for a company called... uh, uh, junior, uh, what was the name of it? Jill Juniors. Okay. And it was junior size coats. So that's where your love for retail and fashion well, came? Well, I, I don't think I really loved it then because um, uh, I think, I, I do believe always that things are part of your DNA. I don't know where your love for cosmetics came from. It probably came from someplace, mm-hmm. did it? Yeah, from my mother. That, there you go. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, my dad, who uh, who was uh, a worker, mm-hmm. uh, always uh, was very well-dressed, by the way. It's one thing about my dad. Uh, was always a very well-dressed guy, cared a lot about his clothes. But I think uh, I think part of my what I did was ended up being part of my DNA. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of a lot of people, musicians, singers, creative people. I always ask creative people, have a certain skill set, whether they sing, whether they design, where did it come from? And it usually comes from a place. So that's what I've found out in life, not that I've done any surveys or research. But then where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to, well, I always like to say I went to Bronx Science, which changed my life because uh, I was the first to go to uh, college on my mother's side of the family. There was four sisters, eight cousins, and uh, I was the, actually the only one, although some of my cousins, one of my cousins went later on. So when I say that, they debate me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I went to Bronx Science. And I realized when you're at Bronx Science that you go to college. It's automatic. And it made a big uh, difference in my life. And then I went to City College for two years. Um, my mother died when I was a, sop, a junior. I went to City College uh, and then uh, needed to get out of the house because I wanted to. My dad remarried, and um, I didn't want to be at home anymore, so I went to the University of Buffalo for two years. Okay, and where is that where you graduated? I graduated from Buffalo and then went to uh, Boston University to get an MBA, uh, not because uh, I felt it was important, but because uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to yeah. go to school and... That's, I, yeah. I honestly didn't know that you had an MBA. Yeah. I well, just thought you were self-taught it, brilliant. Well, uh, I, I don't think they're terribly important, to mm-hmm. tell you the truth. Uh, it's a price of admission, as many things are, to certainly the finance industry. It helps move ahead. 
but uh, and I never liked school. I was always uh, I had school f- phobia, and uh, but I did have an MBA to kind of defer my life a bit. Well, I was really lucky that one day when you invited me to have lunch with your buddies from the Bronx. Oh yes, that was un- <laughs> that was one of my favorite days. Yes, by the that way, that was fun. Oh my god, yeah. it was really great to 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 see your friend who you admire, who's been so incredibly successful in his career, like with these regular guys, and it was just amazing. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't just Mickey the boss. It was all these guys was, together. Yeah, we went to grade school, and, yeah. and one of them went to high school with me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was yeah, it was yeah. A, an amazing moment. Yeah. And so then how did you, uh, you graduated from, you know... BU, Boston University. I always worked as a kid. Okay. Uh, worked through uh, high school, worked in college and graduate school. So I had a history of working. My dad was, uh, he wasn't an easy person, but he was, uh, he pushed me to work always because he felt I was lazy or people are lazy who do not work. So it was always get up, go to his shipping room go work there on Saturdays or on school holidays, uh, et cetera. But then how did Donald Fisher find you? Well, first I went to work at Bloomingdale's. Mm-hmm. So I graduated from uh, from Boston University. I had two job offers, one from A&S and one from Bloomingdale's. Uh, at A&S, uh, and I worked for a summer at A&S on the MBA program, there were certain things in your life or moments that make a big difference. Bronx science made a big difference. Uh, going to ANS in the summer MBA program made a big difference only because of the following. I was going to work for them out of Bloomingdale's, out of uh, graduate school. They were in Fulton Street in Brooklyn, uh, and I recommended a friend work there from uh, BU, and they offered my friend $500 more than I was making, and I was furious. I couldn't articulate it, but I was angry. Bloomingdale's offered me a job, and they offered me $500 more than A&S, and I kind of said, screw you, A&S, and went to work at Bloomingdale's, which was a huge important move. I worked for a woman named Katie Murphy. I don't know if you ever Mm -hmm. knew Katie. She was the fashion director, and she was my mentor. She taught me without teaching me like every day, saying, you learn this, that, and the other thing. We went went to Europe three times a year for my first two years, and um, just buy nice goods, buy good products, buy pretty colors, Price it right, and it will sell. And here I, I am. I don't think anyone's doing that anymore. Here I am, fifty <laughs> years later. Wow. Kind of doing the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So I went to work at Bloomingdale's, and then as it would be, uh, I was there for six years. But after two or three years, I got itchy, and I started to complain. I always complained about my bosses, no matter what I was saying. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what am I learning? This, that, and the other thing. So I quit to go to Macy's. And I lasted a year and a half there and quit to go to A&S. Now, they were all merged eventually. Now they're Macy's is owned by the same company as Bloomingdale's right. is owned. Uh, A&S's name was changed to Macy's. And I went to, so my first 12 years was spent in the department stores. And I finally realized I can't stand this. I don't like doing it anymore. And no matter what job I had, I won out. But in those days, it seems a little different today. One had to make a living. One had to pay the rent, one had to live, and one could not quit jobs when, in fact, you didn't have another job. <laughs> but I don't know if that's the rule today anymore. No, things are different. That you quit, you work, what are you doing? I'm traveling, this, that, and the other thing. So I uh, quit A&S. I had an interesting job offer. I kept saying no to run Ann Taylor. I was 35 years old, and uh, they offered me first the executive vice president, and I said no 
because I didn't want to work for the founder, uh, who was a nice man, but I just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I said no. I said no again. And then here's another part of my life. So I'm having dinner with a very successful older friend than me, probably 13 or 15 years older. And I said, you know, I have this job offer at, at Ann Taylor. What's going on? I said, but uh, they offered me president of the company. I said, and I said, no, this is a Sunday night. I'll never forget. We were at my apartment. And he was very successful in wisdom and all that. He said, take the job. I'd rather be president of a $25 million company than vice president of a $500 million company. Next morning I called. Job was still available, and I went to work at Ann Taylor as president. Uh, did that for four years until we were taken over by Allied Stores, which was a big, bad bureaucratic department store company, and I was not enjoying myself again. I don't want to sound like yeah. a kvetch, but no. you know, it wasn't that much fun because they were watching everything and didn't let me do what I liked to do, which was run the business, be creative. I was, I was again, a relatively young person running a company, but I didn't think about myself that way. And then how did I meet Don Fisher? So I decided, uh, Don called me one day through uh, a mutual friend, Rose Wells, who uh, was one of the, uh, I, I'm not sure what the word is, matriarchs of the industry, mm -hmm. or if that's the right yeah. word. Or, so Rose worked with me a bit at, uh, uh, well, I knew her for years. She says, go speak to him. So we chatted. I had a list of things I wanted to do. I, had a, I wanted to start a company. So Don and I chatted. He was running Gap, of course, and this was 1980. We started chatting in 1982 or three. Uh, and uh, the more I got to know Gap, even though he was going to fund my company, whatever that would have been, um, the more I got to know Gap, the more I said, I cannot work for this company because they're not going to be around very much longer because they were having serious problems. And he knew it. Mm -hmm. To Don's credit, he knew there was no great future in it. So... Um, we chatted, and I went to see him one day, and I said, Don, I can't do this. And I didn't want to leave New York. That was the whole premise is I don't want to leave New York because I love New York. Uh, and sure enough, I left New York. He had a great idea. Come to California for three years. We'll guarantee you could afford to move back to New York in three years because the apartment market was going crazy. And I was worried because a lot of people got fired at Gap who were the president. There were two or three uh, predecessors who were no longer there. And I said, well, if I move out, I sell my apartment. I can't afford to come back here. I had no money. And uh, so I went for three years. I stayed 18 years. I met Don. We created for Gap essentially what was the list of items I had for my own store. It was good color, mm -hmm. happened to be jeans, T-shirts, sweatshirts, um, shirts, men's and women's, all with color. And anyway, that's how we met. We redid 438 stores. Uh, I, I remember Gap back then. That was the heyday. And Well, the heyday lasted quite a while until the heyday doesn't last right. anymore, which usually happens with mo most mm -hmm. heyday businesses. Yeah. So, uh, so in any case, uh, did that. Uh, started Old Navy in 1994. Took over Banana Republic. Uh, probably well it was banana was part of it was bought the year I got there and uh, did it for 18 years wow and um, you know it's not a secret that you were fired I was indeed fired and so what happens when the worst thing happens like what's it like well I was stunned and totally insulted 
because, <laughs> and you know, now I, you know, Don and I made up at the end and I speak to his three sons today and But it takes so time. So it takes time. Yeah. Uh, the company went from um, uh, $438 million to about $14 billion. The earnings went from $22 million to over a billion. And the stock price was, over those years, among the top tier of, this, of the stock market. Um, but I was insulted. I, we had a rough two years. It was the dot-com thing. I, I, by the way, I never blame anyone. I, the people I like to hire are always the people who feel totally responsible for the entire company, even if they're buying a, a swimsuit department, as I did at Bloomingdale's mm -hmm. at one point. So I got fired. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience, to say the least. Um, uh, Don, the, the next day, I'll never forget, he came to me, says he thinks he made a mistake. Um, and would I want to have a company backed by the family? Uh, hmm. Because their stock was worth, right. you know, an enormous amount, and I said no, thank you. Uh, and then uh, we, uh, I chatted. I knew Jim Coulter, who was uh, who owned majority of who owned uh, J Crew. Actually, they had problems for seven or eight years. And uh, long story short, moved back to New York after eighteen years and invested in J Crew and ran the company for. Probably 13 or 14 years. And that story, I mean, it's like amazing, you know, what you did to that company. I mean, we all, I mean, you're wearing J. Crew today. I My, am. I'm wearing J. Crew, J. Crew uh, custom shirt. Through that you J. sold Crew. a J. Crew. Yeah, I mean, right, you, exactly. You Thomas will, Mason. Right. You will always be known as Mr. Yeah. J. Crew. Well, I mean, I, I'm also very proud of what, you know, when you build companies, it's not just J. Crew, it's the people you build. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Old Navy, which I started, uh, was named after a bar on Rue Saint-Germain in Paris. I don't know if you know that. It's still there. Mm -hmm. uh, Madewell, we started. I bought the name before I went to J. Crew for $125,000. And then when J. Crew got turned around, we started Old Navy, uh, started uh, Madewell. And it's been very successful uh, to this day, but it took five or six years to make a profit. Um, so, uh, so I did that for a number of years and left, uh, J crew about a year and a quarter ago. And now I'm just kind of doing other stuff. You're, you're doing what I do. And by right. the way, when I left Bobby Brown and it was not easy, it was tough. You were on the phone every single day. What's going on? How are you doing? I will never forget that. And I didn't know that you were going through, you know, the J. Crew stuff because well, it was you tough. Yeah. It was a tough, you know, when you, you build something and guaranteed in the fashion business, and I consider cosmetics fashion, mm -hmm. you hit a wall every once in a while, yeah. um, so on and so forth. But then things come back or you figure it out or you move on. So what do you think about retail today? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's getting better in general. I think those that deserve it to get better are doing better. Uh, I still think, uh, you know, it's kind of a new game. There's a million startups out there chipping away at some of the big companies. I see it in your world, in the cosmetic world. You have all these little startups that are growing, and they don't get as big as your company was quickly at all. But I think it's a tough business, and I think there are a lot of people doing well, and there are a lot of people not doing well. And I still think, uh, I always say this, I think the product becomes incredibly important. The execution's important. Obviously, digital and online are important. The marketing's important. The personality, the handwriting, the emotion, and keeping uh, and managing a really good company. It's all very important. And uh, 
Uh, it's not as much fun as it used to be, but it is what it is. So, Mickey, tell me about the people you hire and the teams you build and how you and, and what sets people apart. What do you look for? Oh, it's uh, I, I don't know if I'm orthodox or unorthodox, but I've learned this over a period of years interviewing thousands of people, reading a million resumes. And uh, what do I look for? Fast walkers. I really? Like, yeah, I, I like people who walk fast. Okay. <laughs> no, because I, I always yeah. say at work, mm-hmm. it's true. If you see someone walking slowly at work, or even if they're coming in for the interview, you want them to be kind of a little fast walking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I look for, this is for interviews. I look for people who are a little nervous and a little insecure because I think, as I said back, um, people who are successful always want to do better. Mm -hmm. And they're not cocky or arrogant about their success. Uh, And uh, and they're always trying to strive to do better. I look for people who have a high, uh, high EQ, emotional intelligence. I think it's really important. I look for intuition. I look for jobs on the resume if they're if they're college graduates. I look for kinds of not not the uh, entitled jobs, but and, and a lot of people have entitled jobs, and I'm not against that, of course. But I look for jobs that might stand them apart. Love people who worked in restaurants. Just mm-hmm. a bias I have. Uh, who was smart, work in restaurants, work hard, figure it out. Uh, I like people. Now this is I'm talking about younger-ish yep. people who I can learn something from. If I sit down with someone and I don't learn about anything they do, then I don't think they're going to be either good communicators or they're not going to be good bosses, they're not going to be good teachers. But, for example, a woman who worked at Starbucks, when I said, if you were running the Starbucks, what would you do differently? You're the boss at the Starbucks store. And she says, nothing. She doesn't have, I said, well, what about cleaning the counter with all the sugar packets over? And, you know, Starbucks is usually messy that way because all those people are having it. But I was looking for some feedback. If you were running your high school, what would you do different, or your college? Uh, People who have had experience, I give them a different kind of, I look at it differently. I want to know what they've accomplished. What have they done in their job? At a certain point, you start to give back to your company so uh, it's just, did I have a good time with them? Did I learn? Did I enjoy the conversation? Are they motivated? Because people who are motivated really are the ones who are successful. And then over time, you build a team. Now, I am biased towards women. I don't know if that's okay to say that or not. But most of the senior management I've worked with over the 37 years I've run companies have been women uh, because of the EQ factor. But I, I think uh, without the team, you're nothing. Right. If you were starting a brand today, would it would it be in department stores? Would it would it be direct to consumer? Would it be a, a you know its own brick well, and mortar? I, I learned, and this is a lot of years ago. I always had an allergy to salesmen. When I worked at the department stores for twelve years, and I realized that if you don't control your product, if you don't control the positioning of it, if you don't control the placement of it, if you don't control your product. Uh, you can't win big in this world. And if and and the department stores in those days, for example, the salesman would sell me goods, and then they'd go to Alexander's, which is across the street from Bloomingdale's, and sell them goods, same goods. It happens today all the time, of course. When I went to, I was on the board of Apple uh, for 16 years, and when I was, uh, and Steve Jobs recruited me. And of course, I wasn't smart. I said no for a year, and but Steve 
doesn't give up, which I think, you know, Steve is phenomenal. Uh, what, what was it like working with Steve? I mean, he's such a myth and a legend, but no one could imagine what he was really like. He, now, I know there's a lot of stuff written about him right. over the years. I always admired him immensely. Uh, I, uh, I would say to him, I said once to him, Steve, say hello to the people around you. You're Steve Jobs, because we'd walk through his headquarters going to wherever, and he'd get into an elevator, and I'll never forget, there's people there, and he is Steve Jobs. And this is when he was the second coming of Steve Jobs. And I said, Steve, say hello. You know, I said it a little meekly, mm-hmm. but that's Steve. He, he's, uh, he, made, he made a lot of us not feel that bright. I'd go home from the board meetings and say to Peggy, my wife, I'd say, I just don't feel that smart after these meetings. Maybe I should get off the board, this, that, or the other thing. But uh, I, I admired him immensely. And for the last five or six years of his life, he was battling for his life. So you watch that. And I thought that was incredible. He had an amazing vision. Uh, he was articulate. He, he could be a spoiled brat and extremely seductive. But, um, but I, the point I'm connecting is when I met him, he said he wanted to do for Apple what Gap was then doing for its customers, direct vertical retail. He said, I need to control my environment. And he then went ahead to, we developed together the first store. I was just going to ask. I read, uh, I, I didn't read the whole book, that big fat book. Yeah, but, Walter you know, I made sure book. my husband, when he read it, he's yeah. like, read this. And it was that you designed the first yeah. Apple store. Yeah, with Steve, because yeah. it was not simple. It wasn't mm-hmm. white. It wasn't clear. And I said, Steve, let the product speak for itself and be very articulate uh, about what you're trying to sell. He, uh, you know, when, when I went on the board, I was another one of Steve's employees in a way. And he'd call and he didn't care what time he called you. And, you know, one day I said, Steve, I'm sleeping one night. And then he wakes me up the next morning. But I, I so admired him. And, and his brain was extraordinary. You don't really appreciate that when you go through it as much as you do when you don't have it anymore. But uh, the board meetings were an extraordinary experience, listening to him talk about, you know, wanting to do a car and wanting to do this and doing that. And when he first did, the first thing he did was, uh, what's it called? Not the iPod. I'm forgetting the name. The music thing. iPod, right? Right? The iPod. Oh, was it the iPod? Oh, it was the iPod. And he said, how many of these can you sell? He, was, he had the iPod, which is the MP3 player. Right. So he goes around the room. We're all putting out numbers. He goes, he didn't say you're so stupid, but no one's even close. He goes, do you know how many Walkman sold the first year? And that was the number he picked. It was like right. 7 million. You know, we had a half a million. We had this, that, and the other thing. So How, uh, many, did they, how many did they sell? Oh, I think th- it was crazy. It was more than whatever uh-huh. he predicted. And, and what do you think he'd be thinking of his company now? Well, definitely a car because uh-huh. he admired the, uh, in fact, uh, he, uh, he admired the Tesla the engineering of, because I said at a board meeting, I said, Steve, remember the two-seater Tesla was not, if you remember, it was not an attractive sports car. I said, it's such an ugly car. He looked and he says, it's not, anyone could design a beautiful car. It's the engineering or whatever the right word is for the car. I think he would have done that. He probably would have done more in the living room. But as far as the marketing and branding of the company since he's not there is very different. I agree with you. I mean, totally different. Sometimes I see things and I'm like, he would not be no, happy. No way. It does no not way. look like the original. No way. Yeah. I'm not sure he would have ever done a watch either. Mm-hmm. But 
Hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Do you ever pinch yourself and think about here's like Mickey from the Bronx and all your successes and who you've met and what you've done? Uh, I, I wish I could. I don't. You should. I should. Someone said yeah. to me the other day, will you please think about what you've done? Yeah. Because I just move forward. And I'm trying to figure it out and trying to make it better. Well, people say that to me too, by the way. And I never sit and think of that. But every I, once in a while, you're I, like, I think wow. it. I think it goes with the territory. Some of the most insecure people I know are the most successful. I, You know, Steve had two happy days, if I remember. <laughs> I remember him. He went crazy happy when the uh, value of Apple exceeded that of Dell. Because mm-hmm. Michael Dell at Dell once said there's no reason for Apple to be around. The second really happy day he had is when he became more valuable than Microsoft. Now, of course, it's a trillion-dollar company. Right. So, uh, But no, I think, I think it goes with the territory of people who are successful and trying to do better every day that they don't sit back and look and then say, wow, it's great. They might say, gee, I have a nice life. I have this, that, and the other thing. But especially people whose name is emotionally connected to companies. I was thinking that this morning when I'm, I'm dealing with a very large company, which, and I was thinking if this had a founder, if this had someone who cared a lot, it, the whole relationship we were having, the connection we were having would have been a lot different. So I think when you, well, your name is on the com- door. Well, my name's not, uh, that's not well, my door anymore. Uh, but I yeah. know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's different. You start yeah. something. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's different. I think there's, there's professional successful people mm-hmm. and there's people who kind of do it themselves. But then what drives you? Because it's definitely not money. It's not success. It's not power. Something is driving you because you're not just saying, you know what, I'm going to go back to the Hamptons and play golf. Well, I played golf. <laughs> I played nine holes the day after uh-huh. we had lunch. I fell in love with it again. Aww. I really hit the ball well. Aww. We we I went to a golf course that we had lunch at her golf course. So uh, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm thinking of playing golf. But what drives me is creativity, building, imagination. Uh, I can't rest my imagination. So that drives me. Mm-hmm. And with that goes worry, anxiety, and things like that. And by the way, I call you sometimes and you're like, Bubba, I can't talk. I'm in yoga. Why are you answering the phone well, when you're in a private problem. yoga? I do yoga and I answer the phone. <laughs> so what's a typical day for Mickey look like? Uh, I get up and I do... Uh, I what get time? Up, I get up about 5.30, quarter to 6. And then I go to Soul Cycle at 7 a.m. Bike 57 always? Uh, no, that's in, uh, in the barn in okay. Bridgehampton is Bike 57. Right. Uh, and no, you go every day? I go at least five days a week. Wow. And then I'll do yoga... Now, I, it's, it sounds like I should be a relaxed person. <laughs> so I do yoga once or twice a week, and I then train once or twice. In other words, I, I'll do three days of something else, either yoga and a combination of training and yoga. And when do you read the paper? You know, I used to be a religious New York Times reader, and now I read it uh, before before I go to... I just go online. Mm-hmm. And that I was read my the next headlines. question, the paper or online? Well, the... The night before, I'm a news junkie. Right. So the the newspaper's always old news the next morning. Yeah. So I read the night before, I do read uh, the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of covers the New York Post 
page ah, six. Yeah, I do the day. page soak. Oh, now I've got a now no, I have something to no, do at night. No, the Daily Mail is okay. much more interesting. Daily Mail, okay. Than, than page six. Okay, now, um, and they cover the same things. But I they cover a lot of the same things. I might read the post. But first then I don't know what party you've been at because I you've been doing a lot of the party no, circuit this summer. No, no, no. I no. saw your name. One I don't name, few one things. name, not not yeah. too often. But uh-huh. I so I do that, and then I um, either have a breakfast meeting. At, St. Ambrose on Upper Madison or St. Ambrose downtown at Lafayette, mm-hmm. where my office is. And, uh, well, now it's different because before I used to go and go to the office and I was there all day. But do you have an office? Do you have a new office? Uh, we have a new office. Uh, y- you know the Supreme Building? Yes. We're in that building. We have an office. Huh. Oh, so when things are, like, going to break, I can call one of your assistants and go stand in line for my kid? No, because the, li- yeah, the line is unbelievable. It's insane. So uh, I'm there, and, uh, well, that's where Alex Mill is located. Right. Okay. And, and what what is that company called, Alex? Alex Mill. And what is that? Well, it's a story to come on the next podcast. Okay, okay? yes. I, I know what it is. I'm yeah. just giving you guys. Google a, it, buy yeah. it, shop yeah. it, well, it's yeah. a, it's listen a, for it. It's a men's business. My son started about four years ago, and, and now I'm helping out, and we're you know we're going to probably expand it. So Very I'm exciting. Doing that. And then yeah. I uh, I'm involved with uh, Outdoor Voices. I'm the chairman and an investor. So I do that from here. They're based in Austin, Texas. I still have to meet her when she comes. Okay, in. definitely. Yeah. And then I'm uh, involved with Warby Parker uh, as a board member, investor, and, and I just chat around. I'm mm-hmm. chatting around. I'm looking to do uh, some more stuff. I like to be busy yeah. and uh, work. It's just so fascinating. And you have the most lovely wife. Oh, thank you. She is great. And she's I very really smart, like too. She's super smart. And she's working on documentaries yeah, right now, so which cool. is interesting. Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. Have you met Dr. Ruth? Yes, yes, but not well. No, she yeah. never gave you any advice? No? No. No, no okay. No. <laughs> I, she's the only human. I will send you a picture of me and Dr. Ruth. Yeah. I tower oh, over that's right, her. That's right. Ta- because I send Mickey pictures right. every time there's a picture yeah. of me and some tall right. you're, human. You're the, you're the tall one. Yeah, and, with, Dr. Uh, Ruth. with Dr. Ruth. Four yeah. foot seven. Yeah. Is that what yeah. she is? Yes, four foot seven. Yeah, well, I'm five foot nothing, so it's okay. still, well, you know. Well, it's five inches. It is. It's five inches. But I wear my heels sometimes okay, at those so events. Okay, so seven inches, yeah. Fake news. Yeah. And Have you ever thought of writing a book? Well, I, I thought about the book, and then I said no. I would love to dictate something with just lessons I have learned mm-hmm. in the business. I thought about that, but um, well, people have said to yes. me, "I should." I'm not saying yes. this. They said I should have a TV show. You should. I should. You should. You, know. you should. But the lessons I have learned are, are many, many, many right. lessons. And people have to learn this because the new, they, the new people and the kids, they don't have a clue. No one's no, taught them those no, things. No, you have to speak to the things that are logical, simple, and easy to read, and it's really important. Yeah. It's so important to know who you're looking for and to know who's going to be successful or feel it. Right. And well, if I suck it. at this, you can get me a co-host. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, you don't, people, if they want to find you and know more about you, they have to Google you because you have no social media. But I'm going to tell you guys, you could hashtag Mickey Drexler and you could see, I think there's about 350 or 400 pictures that people have hashtagged taking a picture. Don't people always say, Mickey, can I have a picture with you? Yeah. Okay. There, it's all over social media. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Cool. And Mickey, a very interesting thing about you is um, you were once on an episode of Breaking Bad. Could you explain that to me? Yeah. Well, a friend of mine, uh, I was having lunch with him, and he raved about Breaking Bad. Raved about it. And he's a friend who gives me the names of good shows on TV, so on and so forth. And he says, you must watch Breaking Bad. So- 
Peggy and I started to watch it. I watched the first or second episode, and they said, oh, my God, this is an extraordinary show. So I, uh, I have another friend who was the CFO then of Sony, and Sony Pictures did Breaking Bad with, I forgot the name of the TV station, AMC. AMC. And I called Rob, and I said, Rob, how come I've never heard of, well, I never heard of V either. How come I've never heard of Breaking Bad? And he says, um, I don't know why. I said, it's the most extraordinary TV show I've ever watched. So the next day I get a call from the president of Sony Pictures. I said, Rob called me, who's a CFO of Sony Corp. And, and he said, you love Breaking Bad. I said, I love Breaking Bad. We got friendly, he and I, the president of Sony Pictures and the guy from AMC. And then after two or three or four years, they said, why don't you be on Breaking Bad on an episode? And I said, no, for a year. It's like I said no to Steve Jobs for a year. I said no for a year. Then finally I said, what am I doing? So uh, I went on an episode. You were on the last episode. Uh, I was on, yeah. Right? And uh, what was your character? I was uh, a car wash customer. Uh-huh. Okay. In Albuquerque. <laughs> I was the car wash customer. And I gave the money to, I'm forgetting her name, Skylar, right? And I gave her the money and she and, and she gave me Five dollars, and now the irony is because Skyler and Walter were, you know, stealing money like crazy, and you know whatever, and they had all the money in the, in the in the safe at the car wash, and I said, uh, by the way, you gave me too much change, and here's the five dollars or whatever was back, and it was very ironic, that I was an honest customer. That is so cool. We did nine takes, not because of me, because it was Skyler and Walter, so I mean a few of them were because of me. So, anyway, so cool. that's my story. Well, Mickey, I can't wait to see what's next. Okay. And, you know, without being corny on this show, thank you for being my role model oh. and lucky enough for me to be your friend. Well, thank you, and I feel the same way Aww. about you. Aw, I love you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Okay. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production.